Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is Professor Henry Giroux, the Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Henry has previously held posts at Boston University, at Miami University in Ohio, and at Penn State University. He is also the author of a number of books, including Youth in Revolt, Reclaiming a Democratic Future, and Neoliberalism's War on Public Education. He has also made countless television and radio appearances on outlets all across the world. Henry, thank you for joining us today on our program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's begin with a discussion about some topics which you've spoken and written extensively about, neoliberalism and what you have described as casino capitalism. How have these ideas taken hold politically and intellectually across the world in recent years? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I, I think since the 1970s, it's, it's been the predominant ideologists, certainly in Western Europe and in, in uh, North America. And <clears throat> to say the least, it, it raised havoc in Latin America, as, as we well know, in Argentina and Chile and a number of other states. But of course, it also began in, in Chile as a result of the Chicago boys. Milton Freeman and his, uh, uh, that group went, went down to, of course, I, I think it went down to Argentina, sorry, and basically used the Pinochet regime as a kind of, 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 of uh, uh, testing tube to sort of uh, produce a whole series of policies. But I, but I think if we look at this very specifically, what we're talking about is we're talking about a number of things. I mean, we're talking about a, an ideology mocked by the belief that profit is basically the essence, making money is making basically the essence of democracy, and, and that, um, that consu consumption is the only operable form of citizenship. But even more than that, it kind of upholds the notion that the market kind of serves as a model for structuring all social relations, not just the economy, but, but the governing of all of social life. And I think as a mode of governance, it's, it's really quite dreadful because it, uh, it tends to produce identities, subjects, ways of life driven by a kind of survival of the fittest ethic, grounded in the notion of uh, the free, possessive individual and committed to the right of individual and ruling groups to accrue wealth removed from matters of ethics and social cause. That's a key issue. I mean, this is a particular political and economic and social project that not only consolidates class power in the hands of the 1%, but it operates off the assumption that economics really can divorce itself from social cause, that it really doesn't have to deal with matters of ethical and social responsibility, that these things get in the way. And I, and I think we, we see that in a whole range of policies across the globe. We see the attack on the welfare state. We see the privatization of public services, the dismantling of the connection between private issues and, and public problems, the selling off of state functions, deregulation, the emergence of a kind of rabid individualism, uh, the refusal to tax the rich, and really the redistribution of wealth from the middle and working classes to basically the, the uh, ruling classes, the elite classes what the Occupy movement called the 1%. I mean, it really has created a very bleak emotional and economic landscape for 99%, certainly of the population throughout the world. And having mentioned this impact on the social state in the 99%, would you go as far as to say that these ideologies have been the direct cause of the economic crisis that the world is presently experiencing? Oh, I, I, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that 
when you look at the crisis in 2007, what are you looking at? I mean, you're looking at a, a kind of pathological greed that implemented banking policies that deregulated the financial world and allowed the, the financial elite to, in a sense, put through a series of, 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 of policies around particularly selling junk bonds and the illegality of, of what we call subprime mortgages to people who couldn't pay for them created a bubble and exploded. I mean, this is directly related to the assumption that the market should drive all aspects of political, economic, and social life. And what we saw is that it failed. And it not only failed, it, it caused an enormous amount of cruelty and hardship throughout the world. But more importantly, it rebounded. I mean, it, it rebounded and, and in a sense was entirely unapologetic about what it did and then went on, particularly in the United States under, you know, uh, the, the Rubin boys, uh, uh, along with Larry Summers and others, it attempted actually to prevent any policies from being implemented that would have overturned this massively failed policy of deregulation. Henry, to build on your last point, how has this growth in neoliberal thought and doctrine contributed, in your view, to a democratic deficit nowadays in Europe and in the United States? Well, I, I mean, democracy really has become two things for, I think, a whole range of anti-democratic politicians, anti-public intellectuals, and, uh, and, and, you know, the people that support these policies. I mean, I... I mean, a democracy basically is a word they use, but they've emptied it out to basically mean that it's a democracy for the rich, meaning that it's a term that has nothing to do with questions of justice, nothing to do with questions of rights, nothing to do with questions of legality. As a matter of fact, it becomes a kind of front term, a kind of counterfeit term that's used to justify a whole range of policies that actually are anti-democratic. It's oxymoronic. I mean, the other side of this is that it hates democracy. Neoliberalism hates democracy. It, 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 it feeds on inequality. It feeds on privilege. It feeds on a massive divisiveness, and it feeds on a, a theater of cruelty. I mean, all you have to do is look at the way in which it enshrines a kind of rabid individualism. Uh, it believes that privatization is the essence of all relationships. It, it works very hard to, to eliminate any, any investment in public values and in public trust. Uh, it believes that democracy is, is something that doesn't work, and we increasingly see this, and we increasingly hear this. I mean, what I'm shocked to see about you know neoliberalism in all of its forms is how utterly unapologetic it is about the misery it produces. And it's unapologetic not just in that it says we don't care because we have a punishing state will actually that will actually take care of you know young black kids and, and dissenting college students and, and you know dissenting professors who, who basically don't believe in this stuff will take care of them. But it, but it also blames the, the very victims that uh, that suffer as a result of these policies. I mean, you know, the language of character now. I mean, the language of a personal responsibility without linking private issues or private troubles to larger public considerations is, is really pathological. I mean, it has an utter disdain for communal relationships, an utter disdain for unions, for public servants. Anything to do with the public is seen as the enemy. Whether we're talking about public trans transit or we're talking about public schools, because these things in their eyes should be privatized. They should be sold over. They're still assets. They're seen as assets for which people can make money. They're not seen as institutions that somehow contribute to a formative culture that's essential for any viable democracy. 
And having mentioned public education just now, a big issue in Greece, as well as in many other countries today, is the increasing privatization of education. And certainly, this is something that has been promoted heavily during the crisis in many of these countries. How has neoliberalism and casino capitalism impacted the quality of education and also access to education? I think it's a terrific question. I mean, around the quality, it's a dumbed-down education to the point where it literally believes in a way that's hard to fathom or understand for anyone who believes that schools should have something to do with creating critically thoughtful, engaged young people who not only have a sense of their own agency and integrity and possibility, but really believe they can make a difference in the world. It tells them that the only thing that really matters is testing. That, that basically we need to educate people for tests. And what it's really saying is that thinking is dangerous. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a policy that basically suggests that education is not about uh, creating critically informed young people. It's really about training. And it's about training for the workforce. So it does two things. It tends to promote a kind of political and ideological uh, conformity. It's a depoliticizing process. And it's also oppressive because it, it removes from education any sense of vision that suggests that education is really about thinking about a future that doesn't repeat the worst dimensions of the present. And so I, I, I think in that sense, this emphasis on vote, memorization, this emphasis on testing, this emphasis on discipline, as you know, you know many, many of these schools are being turned into military academies, many, many high schools, particularly uh, in Chicago. And I, and I, and I think that what it does is it ignores all those basic problems that matter in which schools have to be understood in order to, to be reformed. And that is whether we're talking about inequality, whether we're talking about poverty, whether we're talking about racism. Kids can't learn if they're hungry. I mean, kids can't learn if they find themselves in schools where there are no resources. Kids can't learn in classes that have 40 students in them. You, know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. And I think that what you really need to figure out is that the right knows this. This is not just a kind of willful ignorance. I mean, this is a very systemic policy to make sure that if education is going to matter, it's going to matter for the elite. It's not going to matter for everybody else in the sense of offering the best possible uh, resources and capabilities that it can offer. Would you go as far as saying that education, and particularly higher education today, actually reinforce neoliberal doctrine inside the classroom? Oh, I don't think there's any, I mean, I don't think there's any question about this. I mean, you can pick up the paper every day and read the idiocy that comes out of the, the mouths of these administrators, whether you're talking about Texas or you're talking about Arizona or whether you're talking about New England. I, I, mean, I mean, the university is being corporatized in a way that we've never seen before. And we know what that means. I mean, we know, or we know what the conditions are that are producing this. At one level, you have right-wing governors, and you have a, a basically a center-right president, and you have a bunch of, of Democrats who really should be a Republican's light, who really believe that you know, we can defund education while at the same time funding uh, jets such as the, uh, the F-35 jet, well, yeah, the F-35 Joint striker, Strike Fighter jet, which cost, by the way, $100 million apiece that they will not provide funds to, to, to allow education to be free for every kid in the United States. In 10 years, it's going to cost a trillion dollars for these jets, and they don't work. 
They can't fly in the rain. I mean, I mean, you know, the military budget is bloated. It's the largest in the world. You can combine the, the next 10 military budgets and the 125 military budgets. They don't add up to the cost of the America's military budget. So you, you have this misappropriation of money. Not that we don't have the money for education. It's, that it's how we uh, appropriate those funds. We don't appropriate them in the interest of young people. We don't appropriate them in the interest of education. And so as education is being defunded, what, what happens is you have these business models now being incorporated into university, which calls, for instance, uh, uh, administrators, CEOs. And, and by the way, as you know, they're the largest rising group in, the, in, in education in the United States. Administrators now outnumber faculty. And they're draining huge amounts of resources away from students. Secondly, of course, faculty have lost power. I mean, faculty now, they're abolishing unions. Uh, the Senate is being cracked down in ways that are abominable and reminders of the McCarthy period. You have faculty who basically are being defined by the degree to which they can write grants. Uh, subjects that don't lend themselves immediately to training are going to cost more for students in states like Texas. Texas went so far as to claim that it would lower tuition for those for those faculties and courses that lent themselves directly to business interests. Can you imagine while raising the tuition for courses in the humanities, in the liberal arts, which these right-wing governors claim contribute nothing to basically the economy? So you're really dealing with, and of course students, on the other hand, are now seen as consumers. They're not seen as important investments in the future around questions of a particular democratic future. They're just seen as slots. You know, and so that's why there's a big purge in the universities. I'm sorry, a big push in the university for foreign students because they're a cash cow. That's how we talk about these things now. So I, I think the university is in crisis, and it's it's in a terrible crisis over over what's going on in in terms of its inability to really take advantage of a mission that in the 50s and the 60s, for all of its contradictions and for all of its problems, at least had a sense that it was more than simply a job training opportunity, or that the university was more than an adjunct of the military-industrial complex. We are speaking with professor and author Henry Zero here on the Alagos Radio and the the Alagos Interview Series. And Henry, building on what you said about the university being in crisis, how has this shift that has taken place impacted education, specifically in the liberal arts and the humanities? And how has it impacted the job market for academics? There are many in Greece, for instance, who view an academic career overseas as a way out of the crisis in their country. Well, I I mean, I, I think two things have happened. I mean, I think that the the liberal arts and the humanities are basically seen as useless. I, I mean, they they don't correlate well with the notion of the university as a factory. They don't co- correlate well with the university as a place that really is less interested in critical thinking, teaching kids how to think critically, than teaching them how to be semi-skilled workers. And, and it, it doesn't work well with the governing structure in the university that, in some in some fundamental way, says, hey, look, power is basically in the hands of CEOs. It's a business culture. We'll tell you what to do. And matters of vision and matters of uh, critique and matters of analysis, and uh, which, which are not simply invested in, in the humanities and the liberal arts, but the liberal arts and the humanities have a long history of supporting those ideals. Those ideals are not simply not in favor at this moment in higher education, except for the elite schools, they, they basically are seen as, as, as the scorn. They, they get in the way. You know, they, they create problems for administrators who don't want cranky faculty, 
who don't want students basically learning how to think, who don't want to mimic the traditions that went on in the 1960s. I mean, they're utterly petrified over what happened in the 60s. I mean, not only did you have students demanding uh, you know, all kinds of things from you know, more inclusive courses, eliminating the racism, making schools more democratic. But you opened up schools, and this relates to your second question, you opened up schools in ways that allowed for the education of a variety of subordinate groups that in the past were excluded from education. This utterly petrified the right. The fact that you could, you know, that blacks, that minorities, that immigrants could actually become educated. Uh, it was, was a terrifying assumption for many right-wingers, uh, to say the least. And I think that what we see now is, and you have to connect the dots here. Remember, you have a Republican Party in the United States that is doing everything it can to violate the, the, the Voting Rights Act. It's trying to limit as much as possible the ability of black people to vote. Think about how that correlates so easily with making sure that tuitions are so high in the schools that you would exclude working class people, poor minorities, uh, people who are considered disposable, uh, people who basically would never be able to afford unless they had adequate funds, adequate grants, adequate scholarships. I mean, this is really not just about an economic, a predatory economic system trying to redistribute wealth from students to administrators to, you know, to the military industrial complex or the financial elite. It's also basically about a systemic policy of exclusion. And so, yes, I mean, I, I think around questions of opportunity as tuitions raise, uh, get raised to unbelievable heights and you have endless students who, A, can't get in because the tuition is too high, or you have students who will be saddled with debt for the rest of their lives in a way that they would never even imagine going into public service because it basically doesn't provide the salaries that the private, that the, the, you know, the private system does, uh, the private market does. And I, so I, I, I think when you begin to put these dots together, you can see how crucial education is to this neoliberal project. Henry, people in Greece oftentimes have this perception that the international media operates on a very objective and credible basis. How do you see the media's role, however, in reinforcing the system of neoliberalism and casino capitalism? I, I, I think it's silly. It borders on being silly, if not utterly naive, to assume that the media is somehow removed from questions of power. I mean, look, uh, in the United States, you know, the, the statistics are very clear. You have six major companies that control the media. I mean, the media is in the hands of, of, of corporate power. I mean, I mean, whether we're, 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 we're talking about Fox News or, or any of these other, you know, right-wing groups, the Murdochs that control the media. I mean, you, where do you see left-wing analysis in the dominant media? I mean, almost never. Almost never. Uh, but if you, I mean, if you look at the, the, the new media, you know, if you look at alternative media, like, you know, the radio station I'm, I'm on right now, you know, there is a new space that's opened up, and that's very, very encouraging. And it speaks to the, the cracks in the system and the inability of the system in light of these new technologies to be able to wage the kind of control that they have in the past. So in spite of that concentrated power, economic power over the media, which is far from 
objective and, and not biased, unbiased. As I said, that's silly. I mean, that the media is completely basically tuned into, you know, maintaining a class system at any cost. And whether that means uh, completely destroying a country like Greece or Spain or Portugal or Chile or Argentina, they, they have no trouble with that. They don't think twice about that. I mean, uh, these, these people are basically ideological lackeys. You know, they're, they, they, they're in the service of the financial elite, and that's what they do. They do their job. But the claim that they're objective is just simply, you know, makes no sense to me. We are speaking with Professor and author Henry Zero here on the Alagos Radio and the Alagos interview series. And Henry, from a political point of view, we've seen a rising tide of authoritarianism and official far-right parties making electoral gains in recent years. On the other hand, we've perhaps seen a failure of the left to respond to this new political climate. How would you characterize the response of the global left to this trend that we have been discussing? I, I think there's something missing from the left. And and I think there are three things missing from the left that need to be addressed. And I think we need to be careful in assuming that the left has failed as much as the left is learning as quickly as it possibly can what it needs to do in light of policies it's used in the past that don't basically work anymore in a world in which politics has been become globalized. And I, and I think the three things are this. First, I think that the left has to become an international left. I mean, the world is now, power is now separated from politics, meaning that power is global and politics is local. So that local politics really has very little power. States have very little power over corporates, corporate sovereignty anymore. They, they, they can't control it. It's, it, 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 doesn't, it has an allegiance to no one. It floats. It floats above national boundaries. And so we have to begin to think about ways to create movements, laws, policies that actually deal with this kind of global network of power. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think the left has got to take the question of education seriously. I mean, education is not marginal to politics. It's central to politics. If we can't create the formative culture globally that allows people to understand that their interests are being trampled on, that they live in a political system that has been constructed by human beings and can be overturned by human beings, but also a, a political and economic and social system that has nothing to do with, with their needs, that basically exploits their needs. Thirdly, it seems to me that we, the, the left has got to get beyond demonstrations. I mean, it's got to come up with a kind of international vision of what it wants to do, flexible, and it can work in associations, but it's got to have an organization that basically can, can have some clout. And in some cases, that means it can be involved in local elections, and in some cases, it can develop third parties, and in some cases, it can, it can work with NGOs. But it's got to take the question of power seriously. Power is not just some, a one-shop deal. It doesn't mean you demonstrate in the street with 200,000 people and then you walk away. It's got to become more systemic. We need more than, a, we need more than what my friend Stanley Aronowitz calls signpost politics, you know, the politics of banners. That's good. It draws attention. That's a pedagogical moment, but we have to go far beyond that. We need to create ideologically uh, uh, politically, educationally, international organizations that can begin to bring their weight to bear on this global politics that now controls basically state politics in nations all over the world. Henry, before we wrap up, where can our listeners find out more details about you, your work, and especially the Public Intellectuals Project, which you founded, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, I did. Well, the Public Intellectual Project is located at Truthout 
www.publicintellectualproject.org. And if you go there, you'll see on the right there's something called the Public Intellectual Projects. You click on it, and what you get is a whole series of articles now being written by intellectuals all over the world who are addressing very important social issues in accessible language. I mean, theory is not being compromised. It's just being made accessible. But it's also being linked to issues that really matter. I mean, secondly, you can, my, my own way, I, I hate to be self-promoting, but I have a website that I think is important. It's, it's uh, uh, www.henryageru.com. And anybody who's interested in my work, all of my work is listed there. And so I, I think that if, if you know, there is a concern about some of the, the things that we're talking about, please go there and you have access to a whole range of information. Henry, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today here on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos interview series. Okay, thank you very much for interviewing me.